thank you for joining us for this podcast from Abundant Life. We pray that you will be blessed and encouraged by this word. Now, here's Pastor Scott. The book of the month for this month is the Gospel of Matthew, and I am loving reading the Gospel of Matthew, and I hope that you're enjoying it as well. I'm going to read to you this morning out of Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want to speak to you this morning from a sermon titled, The Highway to Happiness. Say happy. Pray with me. God, thank you for this time together, Lord, thank you for each person who has come out today. God, I thank you for those working around this facility, even with our children, our nursery workers. God, I pray, God, in Children's Church today that you would anoint our leaders, Father, to represent you well and pour your love out on our young people, God. Let, let our workers in nursery pour your love out on our children, Father. And I pray for this time now in this room, God, that you would glorify yourself. Father, I pray that you would anoint me to say only those things that would honor you. God, teach us what you'd have us to know from your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. The highway to happiness. This passage of scripture in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with the Beatitudes, has been called by many theologians the highway to happiness. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning because I know for sure that if I went around the room and started from front to back and asked every single person, what do you want in life more than anything right now? I would get different answers. Some people would talk about a certain person's health. Some people would talk about money. Some people would talk about job, getting into college, getting their loved one out of the system. Whatever it would be, whatever you would say that you want more than anything else would be different than what your neighbor would say, but it would all come from the same desire, and that desire is to be happy. You want that thing because you want to be happy. I want to tell you something. The God who created you wants you to be happy. I'm happy this morning for several different reasons. I'm happy to see Miss Irene in church. Come on, put your hands together for Miss Irene. being. A, I told them, they say you can't keep a good man down. That, that, that's, you know, probably true, but you sure can't keep Miss Irene down. Hallelujah. Miss Irene was involved. She's our senior member. She was involved in a head-on collision just a couple of days ago. But, um, and I thank God that she's back in church, was, was in food and clothing ministry yesterday. Uh, showed, I heard you showed up. Couldn't keep you away. I, I love you. I thank God for you. Beautiful as always. Up, standing on your feet. I thank God. Uh, you, you little, you achy this morning? Okay. You do what the doctors say, though, right? Praise God. You're just going to keep loving God till he comes back. Praise the Lord. But there is a way for us to get what we want out of life, but it's not the way most people are searching. 
We looked last week at Matthew 6, 33, which says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus was teaching in chapter 6 about how people want stuff. People need food. They need clothing. They need shelter. They need normal things. They need material things. And that's still true today in 2016 in North Florida. We still need stuff. And there's nothing wrong with having stuff. There's something wrong with stuff having you. But there's nothing wrong with having stuff. And we need stuff, but we just got to make sure that we don't put stuff before God. We got to have our priorities right. And Jesus said, if you put your priorities in the right place, that life will fall together. I've been doing what I'm doing for a long time, counseled thousands of people, sat across from people, and have heard almost every story you could imagine to be told, and some you wouldn't imagine to be told. But here's the basic of what a counseling session goes like for me. People have told me, Pastor, you know, when you go through that, it looks like you're mocking folk, and it makes us not want to come. Well, I'm not mocking, but if you don't want to come, hallelujah. It freed me up to do something else. But, get you, you know, let the Lord deal with you. But here's how the majority of Christian counseling sessions go. Pastor's going, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I don't know why life is like this. I don't know why I'm going through. Well, have you been reading your Bible lately? Well, not as much as I should. Have you been praying very much lately? Well, I got, no, not. I just don't understand. My, my money. Have you been paying the tithe? No. I can understand all that real quick. See, there's a cause and effect in life. There, there's an if and then. The, the Bible, I love if and then promises in the Bible. See, the Bible is a book filled with promises, and most of the promises in the Bible are what theologians call conditional promises. Some are unconditional. Some promises happen to everyone equally, but most of the promises in the Bible are conditional, and you can find them if you look for two specific words, if and then. The Bible says many times, if you do this, then you can have that. Or if you do this, then God will give you that. And the problem is not enough people doing the if, but everybody wants the then. There's some if and then stuff here in Matthew chapter 5 that I want us to see because we all need to be happy. And we, the people around you need for you to be happy. People around you need for you to be whole, and we need to get it all together so we can love this life that we're living. Because I see too many people claiming the name of Christ, and their whole confession is, Well, I'm just holding on real, waiting on Jesus, tired. I hope this is the end of my journey. God did not save us so we could just hold on. God saved us so we could dominate. God put us here to have dominion, to subdue everything, to be large and in charge. We're the heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. We're supposed to be running stuff, not running from stuff. But we got to get certain things in place to make this happen. Last week we started looking at how Jesus came preaching the kingdom and we talked about the difference between a church mindset and a kingdom mindset. We talked about the fact that scripturally when the kingdom is talked about, it's usually referred to as a duality, two different things. It's a present reality and a future hope. Now, you need to make sure that when you think about kingdom or when you think about the abundant life that Jesus promised in John 10, 10, why we named our church Abundant Life. Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. 
Our website is Abundant Life now because too many people's concept of heaven, too many people's concept of kingdom, too many people's concept of abundance is when I get to heaven, everything's going to work out. Jesus said that you can have it a thousandfold in this time, in this life right now. Jesus said the kingdom is among you because the kingdom is in you. It is a future hope, but it also can be a present reality if you get things lined up under God's authority. We saw last week that a kingdom is a place where God is ruling, a place where God is in charge. Your home can be the kingdom of God if God is ruling in your home. Your car can be the kingdom of God if God is ruling in your car. Your marriage can be the kingdom of God if God is ruling in your marriage. Your life can be the kingdom of God if God is ruling in your life. Not only a place where God is ruling, but a place where God is working. So Jesus taught constantly about kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, we read the first of five long discourses that Jesus taught, five long teachings. And this is the most familiar and the longest one. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And the Mount means what? Why don't they just say that? They make it sound so spooky, the Sermon on the Mount. The mount, the mount of what? The mountain. It was a sermon. Jesus was at the foot of a mountain. He had thousands of people gathering around him. So he sat down at the base of this mountain to teach. And what we have in chapter 5, 6, and 7 is his teachings from this very famous passage, uh, the Sermon on the Mountain. And he tells us in the Sermon on the Mountain how to live. He declares to us what the kingdom is like and how we as citizens of the kingdom should operate nothing in the sermon on the mount talks about how to be saved but all of it talks about how saved people should be nothing in the sermon on the mount tells us how we get to god but everything in the sermon tells us how we should be after we've come to god so if you call yourself saved today we're going to look at characteristics of the citizens of god's kingdom and it, it, it presents a radically different agenda than what the nation of Israel was expecting from its Messiah. As we talked earlier in the month about the four different gospel writers' approach, we saw that Matthew, in the book of Matthew, it has more Old Testament quotes than the other three gospels combined because Matthew was very deeply connected to his Jewishness and his Jewish roots, and his gospel was written to Jewish people, and they had a concept of Messiah that Jesus blew up for them in the Sermon on the Mount because they were looking for a political Messiah. Listen, it's not unlike a lot of people are looking for a political Messiah right now in 2016. People always want to know who you're voting for. I tell them Jesus. And you don't want us to know who you're voting for? I Listen, I already told you on my image of them, my image of them is like professional wrestlers, and I love professional wrestling. My, my children and I, we go to WrestleMania. We, we go to wrestling companies you've never even heard of uh, that, that aren't on TV as much as the WWE. And, and you say, well, don't you know that's fake? Uh, well, when, when a 250-pound man grabs a 240-pound man and they dive off a ladder at the same time together and land on concrete, that part of it's not fake. That part of it's pretty sick when they bust through a table. But let me get back to the point. There are good guys in wrestling, and they're bad guys. 
What do they call the good guys, Jake? What do they call the bad guys? So you got faces and heels. In wrestling, you got faces and heels. And, you know, some, some people grow up, they, want to, they cheer for the faces, and other crowds cheer for the heels. And I used to really believe that, man, when wrestling, when I was growing up in Jacksonville, wrestling used to come to Jacksonville every Thursday night live at the Jacksonville Coliseum. Ladies and gentlemen, the Jacksonville Coliseum, in promotion with Jet Set Entertainment, is proud to present WCW. With Gordon Soley, and it was just off the, ch- and we were there, and it was awesome. And if you wanted to really see a real fight break out at the old Jacksonville Coliseum, tell one of them little old women sitting down front it was fake. Whoa, you have a real fight on your hands then. But we had people out there like Dusty Rhodes, Black Jack Mulligan, that crowd, and they, they were faces, and they were here, good guys and bad guys. Well, so we used to go, me and my crew, we used to go, and we found out that if you left while everybody else was still standing around at the end of it, and you walked all the way around to the back of the Coliseum, and you climbed up on the eight-foot brick wall, which took, you know, more than I got left right now in me, and you sat on top of the wall, you could see which one of these dudes got in which vehicle, and you could follow them to where they were going. And so you just so happened to end up in whatever bar they were in. You just so happened to end up whatever restaurant they were in. And then you could hang out with, with faces and heels. Well, I remember one night, Dusty Rhodes had been fighting Black Jack Mulligan. And they don't just do it once. They do it Thursday night in Jacksonville. And, you know, Friday night they'd be in Orlando. Then Tampa, Tallahassee, Pensacola. And they just run this show everywhere. When I saw... Dusty Rhodes get in a truck, I thought, man, he should be driving a better vehicle than that. You know, because he was the American dream. He had the bionic elbow before the rock had the people's elbow. And I thought he should be driving a better vehicle. But that thought was short-lived because as soon as I'm thinking he should be driving a better vehicle than that, here comes Blackjack Mulligan getting in Dusty Rhodes' truck. And then they shared a lighter to light up cigarettes together. And I'm thinking, these people are supposed to hate each other. They're supposed to be good guy, bad guy. So we followed them down around Florida Avenue, up around Avenue B, and we saw them pull into the liquor store and get liquor that they drank together. And I realized everything ain't always what it looks like. And that formed my whole political mindset still today at 53 years old. You know what I believe? I believe that whether they're Republican, Democrat, Independent, Tea Party, left wing, right wing, up, down, in the middle, different, any kind of way, I think that they all drink the same overpriced liquor together, send their children to the same private schools that my kids can't afford to go to. They dress better, live better, drive bigger, and wear bigger than I'm ever going to have. Why? Because no matter which one of them says that they're for the common man, uh, they ain't that common. That's my theory. You know, uh, the, the old hymn said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We have people out there now like, my hope is built on nothing less than Donald Trump and a giant wall keeping everybody out. Listen, that's not going to solve your problem. My hope is built on nothing less than Hillary and ugliness. Listen, that ain't going to solve nothing either. She ain't going to win no beauty contest now, let's tell the truth. Unless she's running against Donald, because that ain't no good-looking dude, neither. 
You don't got to worry about me. I'm an equal opportunity offender. You can't tell me. I, I hit them on both levels. You want to know, know what this election should go down as? This ain't even in my notes, and this ain't part of what God told me to tell y'all, so just let me be me for a minute. This may not have the best candidates ever, for sure. This may not have the worst candidates ever. I don't know. This may not have the richest candidates ever. One of them might be. This may not have the poorest candidates ever, the tallest or the shortest candidates ever. But it may well be the physically least attractive set of folk that ever run. You know what I'm saying? Y'all know you're never coming back. Listen. Aspire to marry somebody who looks better than Donald Trump. I don't care how much money he's got, ladies. Trust me. All right, I'm going to keep moving. Y'all mad at me? Everybody mad together? The Bible says you got to love people. Can you love somebody that don't agree with you? Now, if we can't all agree with who's pretty and who ain't, now, we got somewhere to go. But let, let me get back into the Scripture because I know what I'm talking about there. I'm just messing with you on this other stuff. But the people that Matthew was talking to were Jewish, and they had their own concept of Messiah. And here's what their concept was. Because they were oppressed, because they were in slavery, because they had the foot of the Roman Empire on their throat, because this is, they had been under for so long, they believed in a political Messiah because the Bible taught and still teaches that when Messiah comes, he would establish the throne of God in the city of David and that he would sit on the throne and that he would reinstitute Jerusalem as the center of the world and that everybody would be under the foot of the Jews. And they, that worked good for them. They're like, we're tired of being under. We're ready to be over. Come on, Messiah, put us on top so we can overthrow everybody that is on top of us. And that's why so many people were disappointed in Jesus. And that's why Jews today don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. If you talk to an Orthodox Jew, they will tell you that Jesus was a son of God, a good teacher, a prophet sent from God. But he could not have possibly been the Messiah that we as Christians believe he is. Their proof text for that is because he did not establish a political kingdom in the city of Jerusalem. So Matthew knew the people he was talking to was looking for a political deliverer, a national deliverer, and a social justice deliverer, but he was trying to show them that God is bigger than that. Now, I do believe God is concerned with politics, and I'm certain God is concerned with social justice, but I'm also concerned with it's bigger than America. Hallelujah. We're going to learn something if we keep listening this morning. This, this Beatitudes, this Sermon on the Mount passage, it, it expresses the spiritual implication of our lives when we let Jesus be our Lord, when we submit our lives to Him. This passage known as the Beatitudes, it shows the characteristics of people who are truly kingdom citizens. The term Beatitudes, it comes from a Latin word, Beatitudo, and it means extra happy or blessed. So when it says blessed, it's meaning extra happy, but not just happy, extra happy, the type of happiness that God can give. See, a lot of people are happy. Um, see, some people are happy when their team wins. Other people are happy when the team they hate loses. Y'all don't want me to go there. Deacon Henry West, a lifelong Florida State fan, stayed home from church this morning because Florida State Seminoles lost yesterday. 
He'd be sitting right there. Wouldn't he be sitting right there? What did he say? He left me a note. What did he say? Go FSU. Go where? To let some team hang 63 on you? Okay. Son, that's not why he stayed away from church, I hope. But that type of happiness is short-lived. That, and that type of sadness is short-lived. He's going to be thrilled. If Georgia Tech beats Clemson Thursday night, he'll be right back in the fight and he'll be happy about it. See, we get happiness from lots of different things as human beings. I mean, you get a good meal. You, you get a good meal for lunch. You smell biscuits that are just right. Man, I walked in that breakfast yesterday. I smelled them salmon patties. I knew I'm happy already. But that's a coming and going happiness. The kind of happiness God wants to give you is on the inside. Say inside. So the word beatitude means blessings or happiness, but it's an extra happiness. It's a bigger happiness than normal. It, it, it's talking about something bigger than what we can get on our own. We've got to have God involved in it. Now, each one of these eight, how many Beatitudes are there? Eight. Y'all picked up on it. Four people were listening. Some people think there's nine, and if you read it, it might look like nine, but the last one is just expounded uh, on 8A and 8B. But each one of these eight Beatitudes consists of two distinct things, the condition and the result. And this is what we're going to look at as we study the Beatitudes, the condition and the result, because you have to be in a certain condition to get to the certain result. And in almost every case, the condition is a very familiar aspect of Old Testament living. The old, because Matthew's writing to Jews in the Old Testament, and he's pulling out things, and he's, and he's showing things that would be very common and understandable to the Jews. So the condition is a very familiar condition that is talked a lot about in the Old Testament. But Jesus teaches a new interpretation. He doesn't change ever. Jesus did not change the Old Testament. Jesus didn't give us a different way. He gave us a clearer way. Jesus didn't give us a different scripture. He gave us a greater explanation on existing scripture. The Old Testament, people say, well, I'm glad we're under the New Covenant and not the Old Covenant. The Old Testament is still truth for us today. The Bible says all scripture is profitable for us today. But we're going to see a condition that Old Testament saints really knew about and was talked a lot about in the Old Testament. And the new result is a new interpretation of clarity that Jesus brings. This Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, begins with this passage we call the Beatitudes. I told you it's qualities, uh, it's characteristics of the true people of God. People who are part of God's kingdom uh, can have blessing on their life if they do what they're told to do. So together, in these eight characteristics, we see what many Orthodox theologians call the perfect disciple. Now, nobody's perfect but Jesus. But if you can get these eight things working in you, if you can get these eight qualities working in you, then not only are you going to have your feet firmly planted inside the kingdom, but you're going to be in a place where God can truly bless you. Before we get into it, let me give you one more setup thing because we might be in this for a couple of messages. There is an Old Testament correlation that many people have drawn toward this New Testament passage. In the book of Proverbs, most Proverbs is just one little segment, bullet points. 
doesn't always run contextually. Most of the Bible, chapter 2, depends on chapter 1 and is building for chapter 3. I've talked to you about Proverbs. A lot of it is just one-liner bullet points. But there's a section contextually in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, that talks about these six things that the Lord hate. And the King James says, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. There's a list of things that God really despises in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, here in Matthew chapter 5, there's a list of eight things that God really values. And Orthodox theologians have, have linked these things together many times because one is showing righteousness and the other is showing the antithesis of righteousness. The first thing on that list of things that God hates is haughty eyes. And the first thing that Jesus lists in the Beatitudes is being poor in spirit. And we're going to see how these things kind of correlate together. The last thing in that list of things that God hates in Proverbs 6 is somebody who stirs up trouble among the brethren. And we're going to see how that correlates to the last thing in the Beatitudes where God says that blessed are the peacemakers. So you got this one list of really bad stuff. And it's offset by this list of really good stuff. Now, do you want to be known for the bad or the good? Five people still awake. Let me hurry up and get through before they go to sleep. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. All right, so we got a couple of commas there. You always want to pause on the punctuation. Slow your reading down. Take it in bite-sized pieces so you can understand what you're reading. Try to get something out of it. Seeing the multitudes, that means there's lots of people. He went up on a mountain. Who's he here? See, that capital H ought to, ought to be a context clue for you. Bad news is they don't always throw these capitals in there, so sometimes you got to do more work to figure it out. Jesus goes up onto this mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Verse 2 says, Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, I, say, I tell you, always pay attention to punctuation. It's there for your perfection. He taught them saying, and there's this colon, which means there's a lot of stuff that's about to follow. And we're going to look at a couple of these things this morning before we go. These are the things that he taught them as he sat by the mountain in Matthew chapter 5. He said in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I told you, each one of these Beatitudes has a condition and a result. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the condition is being poor in spirit. And the result is they get what? See, y'all all should be pastoring. Not really. The Bible says, and listen, <laughs> tell, tell this, tell this to everybody who thinks they want to start a church. The Bible says, don't go out there and make yourself a teacher over a lot of different people because your life's going to be harder and you're going to be judged more difficultly. That's a, that's, a, that's a freebie for you right there. But the condition is poor in spirit, and the result is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit doesn't sound like a good thing. Poor in spirit doesn't sound like something that you aspire to. If I went around the room and I said, now let's talk about what we want to be when we grow up because we just had this conversation a couple weeks ago, and Uncle Ken's in his 70s. Uh, and he's still trying to figure out what he's going to be when he grows up, okay? Well, we know he's going to be a guitar player forever, amen? But if I ask you, what do you aspire to be? What do you want to become? I really don't think that anybody would be like, you know, Pastor, 
Because some people would be like, I want to be a professional athlete, I want to be a doctor, you know, fake people would be like, I just want to have world peace, because uh, that's never true. Uh, I don't think anybody would say, I want to grow up and be poor in spirit. That doesn't sound like something to aspire to. And especially if you look at the Greek word, and I'm not going to take a lot of time doing a lot of etymology with you guys today, but the Greek word used here is a trifold poor. It's not just talking about poor like we think somebody. It's talking about poor emotionally, poor in possessions, and poor in the spirit realm. It's talking about somebody who is completely without. See, we got poor people. We got poor people in our church. Uh, but we got poor people, if you look at our uh, flags back there for churches where we have countries, if you see the one, the, the one on the left, the second one going that way, Liberia, I oversee 13 churches uh, in Monrovia, Liberia, West Africa, and they're poor. If they saw our poor people claiming to be poor up against their poor people, now if I, if I showed you... Um, or they call him Bishop's representative delegate, Pastor Prince Coon. If Pastor Prince Coon is about small around as a pencil, and he only eats a couple of times a month because he gives most of the food we send him away to starving Muslim children in his country, and he eats only enough to stay alive. And they understand poor on a different level than us. I've told you, in America, we're the only country where most poor people have a pack of cigarettes and a cell phone. That don't qualify for poor in New Crewtown, Monrovia, Liberia, West Africa. I can promise you that doesn't qualify for poor. Our missionary from Nicaragua was here last week. Um, and he told, Guillermo told us uh, that if you get the best job, if you're bilingual, if you can speak English in his country, instead of getting a job for $50 a month, you can get a great job for $350 a month. Now, if you make $350 a month here, you're poor. Okay? That's 80 bucks a week. 50 bucks a month, that, that's, you know, that, that's barely over 10 bucks a week. All right? So when we talk about poor here, poor is a relative term. There's different levels. Of being poor. You might feel like you're poor. The person living in a single wife feels like they're poor until they realize they're not homeless. Problem is, we don't realize enough in America. See, there are people living in 8,000 square foot homes that feel like they're poor because their brother has a 12,000 square foot home. But all of us can let them know, dude, you ain't poor a bit. There are people who feel like they're poor because they're driving last year's 5 Series Mercedes when all their co-workers got the new model. That's not poor. Poor is a relative term. But the Greek word Jesus chose to use for poor is flat-out bankrupt. This is busted, disgusted, and can't be trusted. This is not only poor, but this is someone who has no possessions. See, most poor people in America have some kind of possessions. So our poor people wouldn't even fit into this. But it's not just possessions, but it's poor on the outside, poor on the inside, and poor in the spirit realm. Most people wouldn't say, Pastor, when I grow up, I just want to be poor because that's not what we aspire to. But you got to pay attention to what the Word says. All these words are specific. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. So the condition is 
poor in spirit. And if you want the result, the result is they get the kingdom of heaven. All right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whose is the kingdom of heaven? People who are poor in spirit. Now we're a Bible teaching church. So I talk to you a lot about how to understand what you read. Because if you just read it and you don't understand it, then you can't apply it. And if you don't apply it, you won't be blessed by it. So we got to read it, we got to understand it, and we got to apply it. So I talk a lot about hermeneutics, the art and science of properly interpreting Scripture. I talk a lot about principles of interpretation for understanding the Bible. And I talk a lot about the principle of inference. Everything that is... Not said is many times inferred. If you look at your child and say, boy, if you don't sit up straight right now. You didn't say nothing else. But if they've been around you long enough, did you infer some things? Everything don't have to be said word for word. Some stuff is inferred. You say, I swear you pop that gum one more time. You don't even have to say nothing else. They stop. Why? Because they know that something was inferred. So let's talk about real quick the principle of inference. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whose is the kingdom of heaven? Those who are poor in spirit. So if you're not poor in spirit, guess what you don't get? All right. That's what the Bible teaches. You're poor in spirit, you get the kingdom of heaven. If you're not poor in spirit, you don't get the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is not talking about salvation. This is talking about blessing. Say blessing. This is talking about walking fully developed inside the citizenship of God's kingdom, being who and what God wants you to be, doing what and being where God wants you to be, allowing him to accomplish his goal in your life. You got to be poor in spirit. What does that mean? To realize spiritually I have no assets. I have no assets. I have nothing to bring spiritually, I'm bankrupt. This, this term Jesus used is more severe than our word poverty. It indicates someone who must beg for anything they have. Now, I ain't talking about normal street beggars. There's a lot of people making a good living street begging right now. Watch, watch, watch the news. There are people making a six-figure income right now with will work for food signs. Okay? Don't, don't, it's not always what it looks like. But the, the term Jesus is using is someone who has to beg for anything they have. So those who are poor in spirit are so poor that they have to beg. They, the poverty of spirit, listen, is an absolute requirement for you to get the kingdom of heaven. What I, what I need you to know from this, arrogant people can't even begin to understand God. People who think they got it going on, God, God's not on that level. There should never be a proud Christian because the Bible says that God did not choose the better things of the world. The Bible says that not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise. You, you show me a church full, full of really good-looking people with a lot of money, I, I'll show you something that ain't in the Bible. You, you show me a church full I ain't going to keep going. Let me, keep, let me get back on this side of the room. Listen. The Bible says God chose the lesser things to put his spirit in them to confound the wise. The Bible says God chose the off-scouring to save and to redeem so that the world would know that the power was in him and not in the world. 
I heard so many people when Michael was alive say, Pastor, man, if God would just say Michael Jackson, just, he's so talented. Just think what God could do if he saved Michael Jackson. Pastor, if God would just save Oprah. God, if God would just save Bill Gates. Pastor, if God would just save Donald Trump. Pastor, if God would just save, if God would just save all those people, if they did anything good, people would be like, well, of course, that's Michael Jackson. Of course he did something good. Brilliant, genius, talented, multi-talented, and got lots of money. God doesn't need to save the rich and the elite, and he already promised in his word. That's not even who he goes after. That's not to say the rich people can't be saved. Now, his disciples, if, if any of Jesus' 12 disciples were alive right now, and you ask them, y'all think rich folk can get saved? They'd be like, mm-hmm. Yeah. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. See, but they didn't listen to the last of it. Jesus said, that don't sound possible to y'all, but everything is possible. Rich people can get into heaven too, but the Bible says not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise. There are some wealthy people, some good-looking people, thank God, that he called into heaven, hallelujah, that, that you know, got, got a guide to everybody else. But the should be no pride in Christianity because we should come into this thing knowing I didn't have nothing to offer him. If you're saved at all, he saved you in spite of you. It wasn't because he thought you were so special he had to have you on his team. It's not like picking teams in the schoolyard. This ain't like, you know, let, let, me, let, me, get, let me get him. It's, it's not like that Jesus picked 12 disciples. Listen to what they said about the 12 disciples that Jesus picked. The people around them that knew them best said they were ignorant and unlearned men. These were not college graduates. They were not well-to-do. They were working-class, poverty-class people for the most part. God saved them. Why? Because if God can take a jacked-up, dysfunctional little dude from the west side of Jacksonville and put his glory in him and do anything good from him, people know that Scott Becker couldn't have done nothing good on his own. It had to be God to get anything good out of that dude. And that's the way we got to give credit to God. If you want to come and say, and I've had people say, tell me on their exit ramp, well, this church has been just lucky that I was even a member here. I'm like, I'm just glad you're leaving. Take all that ugly with you. I had a dude tell me one time, if my, if it wasn't for my money that I give to, to that church, all those poor people wouldn't even have a church to go to. I said, let me tell you something. This church was around before your money. It's going to be around after your money. Because it's not about people, it's about God. God is the one who does this thing. But some people really have it in their mind that they're all that, and a bag of chips, and a two-for-nickel butter cookie. They just really believe that they are just special. Listen, I'm not talking about beat yourself up and have low self-esteem. I'm not talking about put yourself through the ringer over, bad, over every bad thing you do. But you need to understand before you can even begin to be who God wants you to be. I don't deserve God's love. He saved me in spite of me. I'm just not that special. But if there's anything special about us, it's the God that loves us. You see, I, I see different saints. I see different pastors. I see different people that have done great things. You, you, you think about all, all these big names inside God's kingdom that if I called them out, you would know these different men and women of God who are famous and have done great 
ministry. It's not their intellect. It's not their prowess. It's, it's not their background. It's not their education. It's not even their oratory ability. It, it, it's, it's not their brain power. It's not their work ethic. It's not their marketing ability. If they've done anything of value for the kingdom of God, God did that in them. God did it through them. It's God, the Bible says, that works in us to do his good pleasure. So we got to understand, first and foremost, the very first thing that we got to understand is to even get in the kingdom, we have to realize I'm empty-handed. I don't have enough to offer to warrant this. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't be good enough to get into heaven. You can't think your way into heaven. One of the old hymns, it said, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. You got to have a mindset like that. Because if you think God needs you, you're missing it out from the very beginning. Now, I believe you ought to have a, self, a healthy self-image. I believe you ought to understand that, that God has, has called you and gifted you and anointed you. I believe you ought to understand that you're a child of the Most High God. And that you're awesome because God in you is awesome. And that you're, you're special because God is your Father. I believe that. I believe that you ought to be a mover and a shaker. I believe you ought to be a dominator. But I believe that to come to God initially, you have to have an awareness that says spiritually, I'm, I'm out. I'm out of gas. See, this is why the scripture says that those who are forgiven for much love God much. You want to find somebody who really gets on fire for God? Find somebody who came out of the lowest place. Find somebody who did dirt. Find somebody who lived dirt. Find somebody who knows that they were out there. And they get saved for real. And then they come in and they just blow up loving God on the highest level. Okay, so the, the thing is, when the scripture says that those who've been forgiven much love God much, it's not just the ones who did big dirt. So you don't have to have been strung out on heroin and been in and out of prison to have been forgiven for much. Because God would have never said that because God doesn't say I value one above the other. He doesn't value the dirt doer who gets saved over the lily white person who gets saved. He values the one who realizes they've been forgiven much. Because whether you did heroin and was locked up in jail for the first half of your life and did all the dirt on the planet, or whether you grew up in a pastor's home and lived right all the days of your life, everybody who's saved has been forgiven much. Those who've been forgiven much love God much. A more literal way of understanding it would be this. Those who realize how much they've been forgiven for love God so much. Do you know how much you've been forgiven for? Do you know how much grace God has extended to you? Do you know that you spiritually had nothing to offer God? See, the sad news is there's people sitting in churches all across this country that believe that they really have something that God needs. Now, you got something the church needs because we need talented people. We need servant-hearted people. We need good people. We need people who are willing to do what God blessed them and enabled them to do. We need people who are willing to use their time, tithe, and talent for God. Jesus had a handful of rich people that supported his ministry. We need a handful of rich people. To accomplish the goals of this church. But God doesn't need anybody. And I wonder, can you really look at yourself with enough humility? 
enough spiritual poorness to say he didn't have to save me. Because when you can get to that, and this is the first thing on the list. I've talked to you about biblical principles, and one of them is the biblical principle of the law of priority listing. The first ingredient on the back of a bag of jelly beans is what? Sugar. Because that's the dominant ingredient in it. In Bible lists, more times than not, when there's a list of things, the first thing is the dominant thing. And in this list, the first thing is prerequisite to everything else. You have to be poor in spirit. Now, this is not woe is me. This is not beat myself up. See, we got to have healthy self-image because the Bible says you got to love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you're all wore out and, you know, emotionally dysfunctional and think everybody hates you, you can't love yourself right. All right? So I'm not talking about a bad self-image. I'm talking about a spiritual realization that says my initial coming to God was all based on His grace. He wasn't looking to me for my money. He wasn't looking to me for my ability. He wasn't looking to me for my intellect. He wasn't looking to me for what I could do for him. Because the bottom line reality is there's nothing we can do for God that he couldn't do for himself. Are you, spirit, are you aware of your spiritual bankruptcy apart from Christ? Now, we'll talk about it in weeks to come. After you get in Christ, after you walk in God's kingdom, you might get a little pep in your step. You might, you might get a little pride in your stride. You might get your chest bowed out and realize God has been nothing but good to me. And I'm walking on cloud nine based on the blessing of the Lord. And I'm blessed and highly favored and God is on my side. And God is for me. It doesn't matter who's against And all those things. But the requisite starting point for being a citizen of the kingdom of God is to know he saved me when he didn't have to. I can't offer him anything that he really needs because he could get it from somebody else. This is what he told his disciples. And I close with this. He said, you didn't even choose me. I chose you. See, some of y'all, I hope you was picked first on the, you picked first, weren't you? And they picking up teams. Yeah, he don't want to brag. There's a reason why his children went to college on athletic scholarship. There's, there's a reason why his, his kids, you know, have, 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 are fast. Elder Robin used to be fast. I think he slowed down a little bit, a little bit. He's still, but he got picked first. Some of y'all didn't get picked first. He knows what it felt like to get picked first. Feels good the first time to tell you, feel, you realize the other team looked better than y'all, and you're like, man, I wish I'd have got picked. But some people don't get, did get picked first. I want you to know God doesn't work a system like that. He didn't work a system saying, look, who's the big, strong, fast one? Who's the smart one? Who's the good-looking one? Who do, who do I want on my team? God chose you based on your nothingness. Because he wanted to put his goodness in you. And once you begin to be thankful 
for him choosing you when he didn't have to, then you can begin to let him stack up those good things in you. Then he can begin to bless you intellectually and, 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 and allow you to chase your dreams academically and, and, and write books and become brilliant after you realize you don't have anything to offer to God and you come to him with nothing in your hand and he saves you and, and then you realize that he gives you the gift of giving and you can begin to amass money and wealth and, and, you, and you can begin to have things to be a blessing to other people. Then you, you can start to say, wow, it's like I, I was this poor beggar child that came to God. I was that, I was that outcast. I was that nobody. I was on the wrong side of the track. Everybody thought I was going to be nothing but God. And if you can't come to God with that mindset, then you can't even get in the door. But once you get in the door, you open access to so many more things. Then you open access to his goodness. Then you open access to his spirit just exploding inside you and leading you and guiding you and blessing you in ways that you never knew. But it has to start with spiritual bankruptcy. Spiritual bankruptcy. God doesn't pick people to save because they're so awesome he needs them. I can tell you this. According to the Bible, he picked some people to punish, to show that they weren't as big and bad as they thought they were. Y'all remember what he said to Pharaoh? Strongest man in the world. That was the guy people would have been saying, oh, if we could just get him on God's side. God said, I raised you up just to show how easy it is for me to put you down. The Bible says God lifts one up and puts another one down. And here's the key to it all. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you. Before honor, there is humility. Before you can truly be a kingdom person. You have to have a humility to the Lord that says, God, I know you didn't need me, but I need you. I know I don't deserve you, Lord, but I desire you. I know I can't earn your love, God, but I want to live a life to please you. That's poor in spirit. It's the opposite of thinking that you got it going on and that God needs you. It's a sad day in a country where we even have to stand up and tell church-going folk to stop thinking that you're all that and find some humility because God is greater. We need him more than he needs us. And if you will start your approach to your day that way, you'll be walking in God's kingdom. If you'll get up in the morning and you'll start your approach to God, Lord, I love you, and I know that you're God and I'm not. You're the shepherd and I'm the sheep. You're the father and I'm the child. You're the boss. I'm just here doing what you tell me to do. But I'm glad that you're a loving father. Guide me, lead me, direct me. And then you will find life takes on a happiness. See that word? Beatitude. A blessedness, a God-sized happiness that comes from this realization 
that he loves you. See, if you think you have to do something for God to love you, that's a horrible catch to be in. That's a trick bag you can't work your way out of. You don't have to work to get God's love. Think about, last example I'll give, babies. As a pastor, I've, I've watched a lot of babies be born. People are like, Pastor, I want you to come pray over my baby. Well, all right, well, tell me when he's there. He's coming. Two days later, is he there yet? Can I tell you, babies aren't necessarily always pretty. Can we be real? Folk like, mine was. Because that's the heart of the parent. It's the heart of the parent. See, them nurses and them doctors, they, they see the goo and the boogers and, you know, the, 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 the poop and the blood and, and all that, and they're like, clean that thing up. But mama and grandmama and daddy, wide-eyed and amazed at the beauty of that child because you love your own. And it doesn't matter when, when you see your child. It doesn't matter if their eyes or their ears or their hair or whatever wasn't exactly what you had hoped it would be. They're still beautiful in your sight because they're yours. And I want you to know something. God sees you as beautiful in his sight because you're his. He views you through the eyes of a loving father. My kids don't have to get all 100s in, in school. They do have to get A's and B's. But I don't, accept, I don't allow them to live in my home based on their report card. They're my kids. They're welcome in my home all the time. And I love them and I've never put them out. They don't have to perform for me because they're my children. They don't have to do anything to, to get my love. Too many people think that they got to work to earn God's love. I want to free you up this morning and let you know, no matter where you are or how you're living, God loves you. Not because you deserve it, but because he chose to. He loves you. He loves you. Churches sing songs and tell people to come to Jesus just as I am, I come. And then harass them because they ain't fully delivered yet. Judge people and criticize people because they're not fully delivered yet. Well, she still smoked. Well, he still cussing. Well, I heard they still drink. Nobody's fully delivered except Jesus. And I'm glad that God receives us based on his love for us. Not on whether or not we know how to be non-gluttonous at a men's breakfast. Because gluttony's a sin. I want you to be thankful that God loves you, not based on your ability to perform for him, but because you know he's God and you're not. Do you honor your heavenly father as the boss? He's rich, we're poor. He's rich, we're poor. You get that in your mind, he starts giving you stuff. And then you realize, oh, I got access, and that'll be a different message. Pray with me. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for blessing us with all spiritual blessings, Father. God, I thank you that 
You did not make us deserve your love because we couldn't. God, I thank you that you did not make us pass a test to get into heaven because we couldn't. God, I thank you that you gave us freely forgiveness for our sins. That you gave us salvation. That you gave us faith. That you give us your love and new mercy every day. God, I pray that you would help us to realize that it's all because of you. It's nothing in us but everything in you. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to decrease even in our own minds so that you can increase. Let us glory only in you and your cross. Let us exalt you above ourselves. Let us magnify you above our desires and our hobbies and our pursuit of fame and fortune. God, let us exalt you. Let us put our priorities in the right place and seek your kingdom more than our kingdom. You loved us while we were still sinners. And you sent your son to die for us, and I thank you for that. Not just for certain people, but for every one of us. Thank you, God, that we don't have to pass anybody else's test to gain your love. And we recognize that your love is greater than anything else we could have. So we thank you for giving us your love. We thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. And we ask you, God, to let us walk in humility and to honor you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We truly appreciate the opportunity to pour into your lives each week. For more information or to donate to Abundant Life's ministry, please check out our website at www.alcfnow.org. Until next time, we pray that you will live abundantly.